everybody, this is another edition of the Basketball Show, brought to you by JockeyOn.com, as well as St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. Lots of stuff we're going to get into in a world of baseball, sports, and unified America. Just a reminder, if you're interested, you can comment on the Facebook or Periscope feed or give me a call, 732-364-3598 at 732-364-3598. Haven't been with you for a little while, obviously. A lot, of, a lot has happened over the course of the weekend. You have the baseball playoffs where they sit right now. The Red Sox with a solid victory yesterday over the Houston Astros, and I still believe as much respect as I want to give the Los Angeles Dodgers or the Milwaukee Brewers, and a part of me kind of is rooting for the Brewers in a way that it's really going to come down to who wins the ALCS. Now, if the Red Sox or the Astros pull off, I think they're going to be a prohibitive favorite when it comes to the World Series, and I think the odds would probably be in that favor. And if I'm a betting man, I'm probably putting more money down on the Red Sox or the Astros to win less, and if I'm looking for the underdog with the Dodgers or the Milwaukee Brewers, you know, you're probably going to be able to lay less money down with an opportunity to win a little more. Uh, I was thinking about some of the things that happened over the weekend, and I, I'm going to spread pretty much the content of my show over the next three days. We'll do another show tomorrow. We'll knock out a, a final show on Friday. We'll do our NFL picks. Um, we're going to do some NBA over-unders today, so we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit. But a couple different things were kind of bothering me, and I know I had discussed this before on the PBS. There's a difference in baseball between gamesmanship and cheating, and I think a lot of times we have a difficulty understanding what the difference is. And sometimes it's easy to figure out. I think if we know, if we're talking about cheating as it exists, I think it can be a little more blatant. Like if somebody is, knows some information, doing something that is completely against the rules, then I can understand why there would be a big reaction in regards to somebody cheating. You're breaking the rules. And we can have the discussion about steroids as, as it applies to not just baseball, but all sports. Is it cheating? I mean, it is somebody, you know, unnaturally growing their body mass, right, by using prohibited substances, usually substances that are against the law, to put themselves in a better position or to give them a, an advantage. That's why they call it performance-enhancing drugs. You get more out of the player in more instances for somebody that's using these drugs and somebody that's not using these drugs. So when it comes to the discussion about stealing signs, I don't necessarily have the same thought process that I do when I discuss things that are more blatant in regards to cheating. If somebody, let's say in basketball, does something to keep the ball from going up or through the basket or something that is as obvious as that or a pro football team puts something that blocks an end zone and keeps an opponent from being able to get in. Those are little more obvious signs of cheating. Now, I think when it comes to signs, they're set up 
obviously to be a communication between a team's dugout, perhaps personnel on a team to communicate within each other. So all the players that play on one particular team are on the same page. And signs have ex existed in baseball for years. So when I think of the possibility of another team trying to steal one team's signs, I don't really, I'm not really up in arms over it. To me, it doesn't bother me as much. I think it's up to that particular team to make sure that their signs are, first of all, communicable between the, the players on the team. The right signs get passed, right? If the first base coach is setting something up in regards to, uh, you know, something that's going to the third base coach or the third base coach is relaying something to the batter, you want to make sure that everybody's on the same page. So that's the most important thing. When you're passing signs, you want to make sure you're passing the right signs and everybody is communicating it on the same level in regards to knowing what's going on. Now, when it comes to the other team knowing another team's signs, if they could see it, I don't see why there isn't a problem with it. Now, I think the dispute and where the fine line is going to be is where that line is drawn, where one team is doing too much to try to figure out what the signs are. You know, you had the Apple Watch situation with the Red Sox a couple of years ago. You had the, the New England Patriots videotaping sidelines and videotaping practices of their opponents. Now, that's, I think, a little closer to the line, if not over the line. But when we're talking about, let's say, the World Series last year, one of the big things that went on and one of the things that could be pointed to for the reason that you Darvish struggled in his two World Series starts was the fact that the Houston Astros were able to see what pitches he was tipping and were able to figure out when he was going to throw his breaking ball, when he was going to throw a split finger. And that gave the Houston Astros a huge advantage. Now, is that cheating? That's probably the furthest thing from cheating. If a pitcher is tipping their pitches, what, are, what do we always say? Shame on the pitcher. You know, shame on the coaching staff, that pitcher's pitching coach, or that, you know, the communication staff that exists within that pitcher for not letting that pitcher know. The catcher should run out to the mound. Hey, you're tipping this pitch. You should change whatever it is that you're doing or not repeat whatever tendency that you happen to be repeating that is allowing the other batters to know what it is that you're pitching. Luis Severino with the Yankees. Was he tipping his pitches? Was he not tipping his pitches in the second half this, of this year? But regardless of who it is that's tipping their pitches, that's more on the pitcher. That's more on the catcher. That's more on the pitching coach and the coaching staff of that particular team. If there's something, some idiosyncrasy that a pitcher is doing, whenever they're going to repeat something or whenever they're throwing the same pitch, they're doing some sort of repetitive motion or hand gesture or thing they're doing with their glove or the way they hold their finger out. And, you know, signs that are set up for their team's dugouts. Dugouts to the third base, the dugout to the cat. If you're looking from one and there's a big X and you know exactly what X means, but the coach is being very flagrant in their way of getting that sign across, then how is that cheating? So you move in a little further and you say, hey, this Houston Astros employee 
was improperly in the dugout or he was doing something that Major League Baseball thought warranted an investigation. What ends up turning out from it, obviously, is the fact that they found nothing wrong. And maybe this is the Houston Astros spin on it. It could be. Maybe the Astros set this up beforehand and said, hey, if you get caught, look, make at it as if you're checking to see if the Boston Red Sox and their dugout and their players. Obviously, this ends up being a deal about nothing that is set up bringing the same sort of about baseball and constitute cheating in the form of the game. And I uh, appreciate you. And you define America, please let me know. Thought of it as something. You know, you think of the runners, the, you know, in the Olympics when they were, you know, taking substances that were against the rules of the Olympics. And you figure that's cheating because those things were not only against the rules of the Olympics, but against the law. So when it comes to baseball and steroids, I understand the argument when somebody says that, you know, is something that should be changed or something that should be outlawed or we should come down harder on players that are using performance-enhancing drugs than we ever did before. Now, how, how does it apply to sign-stealing? Because think about it, and, and I'm, not, I'm never going to use the word gate, by the way, as, a, you know, as a, you know, an ending to something, because I, I hate how that's thrown in there, because we go back to the days of Watergate and Richard Nixon. The Water, Watergate was the name of a hotel. But now we think any scandal has to end with the suffix of G-A-T-E. I think it's ridiculous. But, you know, the spy scenario that was going on with the New England Patriots, you know, years back, they, they found evidence, there was evidence that there were cameras, there were videotaping practices that were videotaping the other sidelines. So I think that pushes the envelope a little more. If you're looking at the line, where the line is, well, I think the New England Patriots were pretty close to crossing it. But going back to the major point that I'm trying to make about this, because I look at what was happening with the Houston Astros and the Boston Red Sox. The Red Sox are upset because they feel that the Houston Astros are somehow getting into their dugout or perhaps getting into their, uh, you know, their locker room. Or maybe, you know, onto the field. Or maybe they got microphones set up in certain places where they could have, you know, important conversations where people are discussing important topics and things that may apply to over the course of the game. And they think that these conversations are casual and not in a situation where they could be used against them. Now, baseball for 150 years has had gamesmanship. It's had... People trying the best that they can to use every advantage, either on the field, whether it's between the ears, whether it's from a physical standpoint, whether it's from a knowledge standpoint, whether it's from a research standpoint, to give themselves the best chance to win. And I, I always remember one thing that Ty Cobb said years ago. And obviously, you know, Ty Cobb was deceased way before I was born, but this was Shortly after his playing career, he was asked about Walter Johnson, and he had very good numbers against Walter Johnson. And anybody that knows Walter Johnson, the big train, arguably one of the best and most dominant starting pitchers that the game of Major League Baseball has ever seen. In 1936, he was one of five members of the inaugural class of the Baseball Hall of Fame. 
the first one of the first five players selected. And like I said, arguably the best pitcher to ever pitch. And Ty Cobb, especially in the second to latter part of his career, owned Walter Johnson. Hit something like over 400 against him. And people asked him, you know, this guy throws between 95 and 100 miles an hour, dominates probably better and is, is more, you know, is more accomplished than any other pitcher that the game has ever seen. How did you hit so well against him? And he said, I listened to Walter Johnson in an interview. Talk about how he was afraid of his own fastball. In other words, he talked about how he was worried that if he lost control of his fastball, it could potentially kill somebody. And something that happened in Major League Baseball in 1920 was the infamous incident involving Ray Chapman, the shortstop of the Cleveland Indians, being hit in the head by a pitch from Yankees pitcher Carl Mays. Chapman ends up dying as a result of it. Cleveland Indians dedicate their season to him, end up winning a World Series. So Walter Johnson, who at the time is thrown between 95 and 100 miles an hour, when very few pitchers are even getting close. And the velocity of his fastball is certainly coming in at a lot harder than we can imagine, let's say, in a Raldis Chapman throwing 105 or a Nathan Avaldi throwing 100 right now. So Ty Cobb said he heard him talk about his fear of hurting somebody. If a ball got away from him and he accidentally hit somebody, he was afraid that he was going to kill somebody with his fastball because he viewed it as a weapon. He wanted to use it for his advantage, to have a great career, to put up you know, a series of great games, to lead the Washington Senators to prominence. But he was afraid that if that ball got away from him, it might end up injuring somebody. And... Ty Cobb decides to move closer and closer to the plate every time that he faces Walter Johnson. He's literally almost standing on top of the plate, knowing that Walter Johnson is going to be very fearful of throwing a ball inside. Now, Ty Cobb is so close to the plate that maybe if a ball comes close to hitting him, it still might be a strike. But Walter Johnson is looking at it as, you know what, I don't want to hit him. So he's naturally going to throw the ball away. Ty Cobb used the advantage that he had because he got so close to the plate and knew that Walter Johnson would not throw inside to know the ball is going to be pitched outside and you know work his approach to hit the ball to left field, which he was one of the best in baseball history to ever do. So you know he ends up having a you know great numbers against one of the best pitchers ever. So how does that apply? Apply? to, you know, gamesmanship against cheating. If you're stealing somebody's signs, maybe that team that's having their signs stolen should switch them up. If there's that rhetorical runner at second base that is relaying, you know, a curveball to the batter because the catcher puts two fingers down, then do something else to tell the pitcher that you're going to throw a curveball. You see so many changes you know, in regards to catchers going out to the mound. And, of course, you got the mound visit issues as, as they, they exist. You know, you can only go to the mound six times. You know, obviously, in past years, you had catchers going out to the mound almost every pitch. And I understand with the technology, it's a lot more complicated. I don't believe in putting a camera out there or using, you know, an, you know, an Apple Watch to be able to relay signs. 
But if you're able to determine what the other team is going to do, then that team's got to do a better job in making sure that their signs are not that detectable. I mean, the Houston Astros, you know, allegedly are stealing signs from the Boston Red Sox. The Red Sox are pissed off about this, but a couple years ago they were using the Apple Watch and supposedly stealing signs from their rival, the New York Yankees. Yet, the New York Yankees, who are complaining about the Boston Red Sox stealing signs, were accused of stealing signs themselves through different things that were put into their stadium. So, every team, if they have the opportunity or the resources to do it, are likely to do the same thing. And there may be some moral police out there. And I understand the moral police on the other side saying this is something that is not, it, it isn't moral, it isn't polite, it isn't really nice to do, but is it against the rules? And if I have to hear one more time about baseball's quote-unquote unwritten rules, that, that's for another conversation, I promise. I'll, I'll go off about this another time. But you know, you know, you're looking at a situation where Teams are trying to get every advantage that they possibly can. Technology is at its height. So you have so much more available at your fingertips. You know, the iPads that are in the dugout. You know, the, the iPads could be used to transfer information, saying, hey, this is the spray chart of where this guy hits. Let's play him here on the field. You know, this is a sequence that got this batter out down, you know, years ago. Let's try this. So you, you understand the use of mobile devices being existed in a locker room setting and possibly in a dugout setting. So if every team has the same technology, which they all do, it's up to that team over how much they're going to use it. And are they going to border on crossing that line in regards to passing gamesmanship and doing something that could be considered not correct, and maybe, if you push it a little further, could be against the rules. Once again, this is the Pass Ball Show brought to you by JohnPLA.com. Just a reminder that this is the famous Budweiser beer. We know of no brand produced by any other brewer that costs so much to brew an age. Our exclusive Beachwood Aging produces a taste, a smoothness, and drinkability you'll find at no beer at any cost. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the Buffalo Bills and I haven't spent too much time really analyzing what I think of the Bills, what they're going to be this year. Obviously, they made it to the postseason last year for the first time in, what, 17 years? So it was a great step for them. Obviously, you think of the Buffalo Bills and their franchise and you know them as the only team in professional sports history to lose four championship games in consecutive years. But you think of that that great team with Jim Kelly and Thurman Thomas and Andre Reid and all the guys they had there. Of course, the legendary coach, Marv Levy, and, you know, he gets into the Pro Football Hall of Fame and a team for a long time struggled to get itself any sort of continuity. Gets the playoffs last year with their quarterback, Tyrod Taylor. They decide that they're going to move on from Taylor, trade him to the Cleveland Browns and end up drafting Josh Allen with the number seven overall pick in this past year's draft. Now, they made a trade for A.J. McCarron from Cincinnati Bengals, 
And it looked like it was going to be a pretty good setup for them. You know, McCarron finally, after sitting behind Andy Dalton in Cincinnati for a series of years, will get his first opportunity to start. And at least the National Football League and the people have followed a game. And even A.J. McCarron will get an understanding of what this guy's about. He's played a couple games here and there, but you never seen him over the course of a full season. And if he plays a full season, can he be that, I don't know, top 20 or top 32 quarterback? Can he be a quarterback that is good enough to warrant a starting job in the National Football League? You know there's a lot of teams that have started quarterbacks that are not that dependable. So right before the season starts, John Gruden comes in, makes a trade with the Bills, and A.J. McCarron goes to Oakland, leaving the Buffalo Bills with just two quarterbacks, Josh Allen and Nathan Peterman. Now, Nathan Peterman is known, unfortunately, for a rough game that he had a couple years ago, or last year. At this point in his career, has not done very well. Josh Allen, quarterback out of Wyoming, he's pretty much ready. At some point in the season, he's going to take over and is going to beat a Buffalo Bills quarterback going forward. So this is why A.J. McCarron, the ball, Nathan Peterman, could probably function as a decent number two look of what Nathan Peterman can do. One game for the Buffalo Bills to realize that Nathan probably not the answer. And here's a guy, one game, ends up over the course of two games. Look at his positions in that game. He's actually thrown three tough interceptions, sitting with a quarterback of between the two years. It's obviously a level NFL decision. Josh Allen's going to... And now John situation where maybe he's hurt. And he's got elbow. Maybe he's Tommy Johnson. Now, the locker room, a nice guy. He's a, a person, a certain response behind the side, but he's not a good very the streets. They're going to see your old Derek Anderson, a guy who has played for teams. He's kind of a nation, right? Fitzpatrick was, you know, for after practice, is given a starting quarterback job with Peterman, that they're going to give Derek Anderson, a guy who just got a couple days to learn the playbook, a chance to start. But I thought about this a little bit deeper because it look you look at the dearth or the weakness of the National Football League in regards to finding competent quarterbacks off the street. Tom Savage ends up signing with the San Francisco 49ers. You know, the former Rutgers quarterback, you know, has struggled mightily in in his limited action over the course of the National Football League. Uh, you look at a guy like Davis Webb, who was cut by the New York Giants. And obviously you hear this more on the New York-centric radio and TV, but if the Giants believed so much in Davis Webb, or Davis Webb was as good as he was expected to be, how come nobody in the National Football League has picked him up? How come the Buffalo Bills in this situation, where they need a quarterback not just to be on their roster, but likely to start and play? are not interested in Davis Webb. Tom Savage, like I said, goes to the San Francisco 49ers. You know, he struggled in his handful of games that he played over, you know, the course of the past two seasons. And obviously out of Rutgers, a good, you know, had a good career there, but, you know, really has been weak in a National Football League. And any team that's going to start Tom Savage is probably not expecting to win too many games. So he gets a job with the San Francisco 49ers. Davis Webb can't get a job right now after being a highly rated draft pick a couple years ago by the New York Giants. And then he got Colin Kaepernick. And I don't want to turn this into another Colin Kaepernick discussion. 
And in fact, my whole mention of Kaepernick is just going to be football related right now. But you got a guy still relatively young. You, you know, you could talk about the reasons why he's not getting offers. And before I'd consider Colin Kaepernick, I'd have to ask a couple questions. Number one, is Colin Kaepernick in his best possible football shape? Has he been training enough as, his, as if he is expecting to get a call? If he gets a call, is he going to be able to respond to it? And number two, does Colin Kaepernick even want to play anymore? Those would be two questions that I want to ask before I started to talk about the possibility of Colin Kaepernick being an option. But you know, you're looking at two distinct places here. The San Francisco 49ers, who of course, lost Jimmy Garoppolo for the season. And then you got the situation in Buffalo where they're carrying two quarterbacks for the last couple weeks, and one of them's Nathan Peterman. And, and as far as it goes, and I'm going to make two more points on this, I'd like to see Peterman do well. I'd like to see him at some point figure it out. Obviously, there's some issue that he's having reading defenses, throwing all those interceptions. You know, he's looking, he's thinking that receivers are going to be in a certain place, and either they're not, or he's expecting defenders to be in a certain place, and they end up being right in front of the ball and end up picking it off and making him look bad. But at some point, I'd like to see Nathan Peterman succeed in the National Football League. I don't believe it'll happen, but I'm certainly rooting for it. Last thing is we come first full circle in this discussion about the Buffalo Bills quarterback situation. There's a quarterback that's backing up Baker Mayfield in Cleveland right now. Rumor is that Cleveland Browns are looking to trade him. Now, I don't think this scenario would ever happen. But wouldn't Tyrod Taylor be a pretty good fit for the Buffalo Bills right now? And I understand how that wouldn't be possible. How that would be something that you could just back off and say, I don't think that there's any way to be able to do that. But when it comes down to numbers and when it comes down to the best fit for a given situation, Tyrod Taylor playing for the Buffalo Bills might not be a bad thing. I don't think the Bills would do it. I don't think they would trade for the quarterback that they just traded. They moved him for a reason. I think they wanted to clear the space to allow a guy like Josh Allen to take the quarterback job. And he did make the trade for A.J. McCarron. So the thought was, was that Taylor was being replaced by McCarron and bringing in Josh Allen to eventually be the starter and the heir apparent to McCarron was going to work. But once they traded McCarron, they were just left with the two quarterbacks. But I think Tyrod Taylor, hypothetically, and I don't know how Buffalo Bills fans feel about it. I mean, he was their quarterback in their lone playoff game in the last 18 years last year. But you're looking at fits. It might not be a good fit for him in Cleveland right now, now that Baker Mayfield is the man. Baker Mayfield's not relinquishing that job. Tyrod Taylor getting an opportunity to start for that team would only be contingent on an injury to Mayfield. And if Mayfield's not hurt, Taylor's probably played his last game for the Cleveland Browns. Now, I think it would be interesting to think about Taylor going back to Buffalo. We'll throw this one out there. This copyright and telecast is authorized under internet rights granted by the World Wide Web and is solely for entertainment of our audience. Any publication, reproduction, other use of the pictures, descriptions, and accounts of this show 
without the express written consent of the past ball show, JohnPielli.com and JohnPielli LLC is prohibited. Any commercial or other use of the program, such as by charging admission for its showings, is similarly prohibited. The last thing I wanted to get into today is to talk a little NBA, because I haven't spent a lot of time talking basketball yet a couple of years. Yesterday, kick it off the season, and obviously if you're talking about the favorites when it comes to winning an NBA championship, you certainly have to look at the Golden State Warriors, who have won three times in the past four years. The big news, of course, LeBron James leaving the Cleveland Cavaliers and joining the Los Angeles Lakers. Now, one thing that is on the line for LeBron James is his strength of being part of eight consecutive NBA Finals. And I believe, barring a miracle, barring some ridiculous cohesion with him and his new Los Angeles Lakers teammates, that that streak will probably end this year. Now, you look at the Boston Celtics and getting 60 games out of Kyrie Irving last year and having to miss just about the entire playoffs. Gordon Hayward getting injured in the first quarter of the first game. The Boston Celtics certainly look like a team that should be much better this year. They're not going to have the Cleveland Cavaliers to fight with. They are obviously the prohibitive favorites in the East. Do they have enough to wrestle an NBA championship away from Golden State? Now, you could think of some other teams, the San Antonio Spurs, and the, the Toronto Raptors, obviously the big trade between you know, between them with uh, DeRozan and the disgruntled player from the uh, from the San Antonio Spurs going to uh, Toronto. Those teams, I think, are going to be impacted a certain way. Greg Popovich is still in in San Antonio as the coach. You got a new coach in Toronto, and I, I do think when it comes down to the NBA, you're going to have some surprises, but Pretty similar to last year and in past years, you have a very top-heavy league. And if you're talking about a team that, first of all, is going to come out of the Western Conference, they got to get through Golden State. Houston had a great year last year, most wins in the NBA. They looked like a team that was you know, poised to possibly take away the Western Conference title from the Golden State Warriors. It didn't happen, but it did go to seven games. The Cleveland Cavaliers and all their turmoil they had over the course of the season. The complete overhaul of their roster at the trading deadline. They looked like a team that it was a matter of when they were going to be eliminated. Could a team like Philadelphia take them out? Could a team like Indiana take them out? They went seven games in the first round. Boston looked like there was going to be no chance that Cleveland was going to get past Boston. Obviously, the Cavaliers are going to be a little bit weaker. But the one thing that I do want to point to is the fact that there is a pretty talented roster that this team is bringing forward. The last time LeBron James left and it, and with the big decision ended up going to Miami and the whole thing, he kind of left that roster depleted. And the reason that he left, and I'm sure if you asked him, there's a good chance he'd say this, was he was being asked to essentially carry the whole team. Now, we could talk about the last couple years and the way it's set up to the, you know, the NBA with team players kind of being their own general managers and bringing in players. And to a certain point, you could say that, 
you know, a LeBron James would have control over the type of players that get brought in and who his supporting cast ends up being. Now, the Cavs roster right now, I think, is strong enough where they could potentially overachieve. I don't think of them as a playoff team, and if they do somehow make the playoffs, it would be as a 7th or 8th seed, and it would be fodder to be beaten up or thrown around and defeated early on in the playoffs. So I'm going to put these up on my website. These are going to be my five over-unders. And the first one I'll go with is one I just talked about. The Cleveland Cavaliers are at 30.5. Now you can consider the fact that LeBron James not being there is going to be a big difference. But once again, I think the roster that is still there is enough to compete. And remember, LeBron James going to the Western Conference, I think makes the Eastern Conference even weaker. So I believe that the Cavaliers can win some games. I think they could get themselves to about 35, maybe approach 40 wins. Either be on the outside looking in when it comes to the playoffs, or maybe gather themselves a 7th or 8th seed. Not going to go very far this year, but I think it's a sure bet that the Cleveland Cavaliers will win 31 games or more this year. So over under number one, Cleveland Cavaliers, 30 and a half, over 30 and a half. The next one I'm going to go with is going to be a team that I believed in. And I think they they are moving in the right direction. Of course, they made the decision last week to fire general manager Ryan McDonough, and that's the Phoenix Suns. And I, I don't think that they're going to take those huge that huge step and jump themselves into a position where they're going to be an elite Western Conference team, but I think they can make a run for the playoffs. And I think if you look at their season last year, obviously it couldn't get any worse. They made a couple very, very wise moves, of course, taking DeAndre Ayton with the number one overall pick. Of course, the deal, the deal that they make to make the, to get uh, DeAnthony Melton to be their point guard. You still got a couple good players there. You got a new coach, a coach that. Looks like he's motivated to get this team going in the right direction. And I look at the number 29, and I just believe it's a little low. For a team like Phoenix that I think could be upstart, maybe they miss out on the playoffs, but they they can win 35 games. I don't think that's that big of a deal. So pick number two, Phoenix Suns over 29. The next one I'm going to talk about is one that I think is going to get some brushback. There's going to be a little bit of an issue with this one because this is a team that is perhaps going through a little bit of turmoil itself. And I look at the Minnesota Timberwolves and their roster the way it's set. Of course, they have some veterans. They brought in Derrick Rose. You know, they got, you know, the very good, talented player, Carl, Carl Anthony Towns, Jeff Teague, Andrew Wiggins, and This is a team that has been kind of building itself up over the last couple of years. Luol Dang comes there, joining Tom Thibodeau. And of course, all the talk is about Jimmy Butler. Jimmy Butler wants to be traded. The owners on the record today saying, we're going to trade Jimmy Butler. We're going to make sure that we grant his wish and get him out of here. We don't want him as a distraction. Now, Jimmy Butler not being a Minnesota Timberwolf, may hurt that team. He's probably their best player, certainly their most prolific scorer. 
But the other side of a potential Jimmy Butler trade that I don't think a lot of people have talked about is what exactly are you going to get in return? Now, the one thing about the NBA that's different from other sports is you got to match salaries to be able to pull off a trade. Sometimes trades are made where a player that is much to the chagrin and very low in regards to judgment of one team and just happens to get paid a lot of money is sent to another team for a player that is much more valuable than them just to even off the salary. I think the Minnesota Timberwolves are going to be wise with this. They're going to look to try to get themselves another score. Maybe they find a disgruntled situation with another team and are able to pull off a, a big type of deal where they can get another team score for Jimmy Butler, let the salaries match up, and maybe that'll be the best thing for the Timberwolves going forward. Now, I'm not being too hypothetical with this because we know that Jimmy Butler is going to get traded. Now, the question is, does he get dumped for matching salary and a couple draft picks, or does he get moved for another player that could potentially impact that roster in a positive way? I'm going towards the latter on it. And that's why I'm going to go Minnesota Timberwolves over 45. I looked at them last year, and they were a team that seemed to be just a little short of going on that run and finally coming together and being that blooming rose that we expected them to be a couple years ago when they had the advantage of having all those top draft picks. Those players end up coming together. Of course, they made the trade of Kevin Love to the Cleveland Cavaliers to get Andrew Wiggins. So this is a very young team, a core that has worked itself together, is very used to each other. The coach has been there a couple of years. And you look at what happened with the Philadelphia 76ers last year, and you just saw the cohesion kind of come together. And the 76ers are certainly going to be a favorite when it comes to the NBA. I'm going to talk about them in a second. You know, certainly in the Eastern Conference, but I could see the Minnesota Timberwolves being that next team to jump up there, maybe grab 50 wins, maybe grab 52, 54 wins, and a two or three seed or a three or four seed in the Western Conference. So once again, Minnesota Timberwolves over 45. I took two unders, and the first one I'm going to talk about is the Toronto Raptors. The trade of Kawhi Leonard, him ended up going... To Toronto from San Antonio, I think was setting themselves up in a position where I think the Raptors should probably take a step back. The most important thing that I could say, and of course, and I apologize for not having this right, Kawhi Leonard is the guy I'm talking about. You know, excuse me for acting like a complete moron, but you know, Kawhi Leonard going to the Toronto Raptors, I don't know if that's necessarily going to help that team. DeMar DeRozan was their franchise player, certainly their franchise leader in a bunch of different categories. And he ends up being moved from that team. There was obviously some cohesion. There is a a team that's kind of unified around each other. But the general manager and the owner deciding that, hey, maybe they've hit their maximum and the amount of games they're going to win and as far as they're going to get in the NBA playoffs. Now, I thought this line was a little bit too high. They were given 55. I'm not going to say that the Toronto Raptors are going to go downhill and be hideous and be a bad team. That being said, I don't think they're going to win 55 games. So give me Toronto Raptors under 55. 
against me wish I were 35 years younger. I know, so you can kick my ass. No, because I can kick your ass right now. But 35 years ago, I could have loaned your parents the money for an abortion. So the last one that I wanted to talk about was an interesting one because I look at the Western Conference and you could say that perhaps the Denver Nuggets are going to win some more games this year. Perhaps the Utah Jazz are going to win more games this year. A lot of people are believing that the Los Angeles Lakers are going to end up winning some more games than is expected. You know, this was a team that won 30-something games last year. Maybe they could win, you know, 45, 50. They could get themselves in a playoff position. LeBron James by himself should be enough to make them drastically better. Now, I was looking at the teams and saying, all right, well, if Denver's better, if Portland's better, if Utah is better, if the Lakers are better, well, who's going to fall a little bit? And I look at the New Orleans Pelicans. And, of course, they got, uh, you know, DeMarcus Cousins ends up leaving to go to the Golden State Warriors. The rich get richer there. Is a team that, of course, is centered around Anthony Davis. This is a team that still has a lot of talent. But I think when it comes down to it, somebody is going to have to fall. And is it a matter of New Orleans, who obviously had a good season last year, had a good performance in the playoffs, were very competitive? Do they drop to be a seventh or eighth seed? So their number 46, to me, seems a little bit high. So I'm taking them for my unders. So the overs, once again, we'll post them up on JohnPielli.com. You got the Suns over 29, the Minnesota Timberwolves over 45, the Cleveland Cavaliers over 30 and a half, and then the unders, Toronto under 55, and New Orleans under 46. I've already placed my bets. So once again, I don't put, put anything up here on the Passball Show that I haven't put my own money on. We'll see how it ends up turning out. Obviously, you have any of your over-unders that you're interested in bringing up, please comment. You know, let, let me know. There's a comment. There's a contact page available on my website, johnpielli.com. So a little bit of a recap of our show from today. Gamesmanship versus cheating. Is stealing signs that much cheating? And, you know, is the use of pine tar in somebody's glove or on somebody's bat, does it give them that distinctive of an advantage? You know, are amphetamines cheating? What's the difference between gamesmanship and cheating? Because we know gamesmanship has existed in Major League Baseball for 150 years. Cheating, yes, in different sp you know spots and times has happened. But we, we tend to not know the difference sometimes between cheating and gamesmanship. The Buffalo Bills, who are going to be starting Derek Anderson, a, a journeyman quarterback who's played in the National Football League for 10 years, signed him right off the streets, gave him two practices, and are going to give him the starting quarterback job this coming Sunday. This tells you everything you need to know about what they feel about Nathan Peterman. Obviously, Josh Allen's going to be out. It looks like he's going to avoid Tommy John surgery, as we hit the concluding point of the passball show today. Brought to you again by JohnPielli.com, as well as St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. But, you know, it makes me think of the disparity that exists between quality NFL quarterbacks and guys that continue to get a job year after year. The Derek Andersons of the world, 
the Tom Savages of the world who just signed with the San Francisco 49ers. And then you look at somebody like Davis Webb, who was highly regarded by the Giants. Giants fans going crazy last year about playing Davis Webb, giving him an opportunity to play. Giants released him in training camp this year right before the season started. He hasn't gotten a job yet. Colin Kaepernick, you know, as much as you could say about his off-the-field distraction, probably has as much talent and probably more talent than some of these guys that got jobs in the National Football League. And to put my old Buffalo Bills discussion in a, in a full circle form, Tyrod Taylor was the quarterback that led them to the playoffs last year. They decided before the season or around the draft time that they were going to trade him to the Cleveland Browns. They ended up making a trade with the Cincinnati Bengals to get A.J. McCarron. Right before the season started, after they drafted Josh Allen, the quarterback out of Wyoming, they sent A.J. McCarron to the Oakland Raiders, leaving themselves with two quarterbacks. Josh Allen's hurt. Nathan Peterman's not very good. Derek Anderson has just been pulled off the street. Wouldn't it be fitting? If the quarterback that probably would give the Buffalo Bills the best chance of finishing 8-8, making a run for the playoffs if Josh Allen can't play, is in fact Tyrod Taylor, the guy that they just traded last offseason. And finally, my NBA over-unders, we'll have them up on JohnPielli.com. Please check that out. We'll be back with you tomorrow. Once again, this is the Pass Ball Show. I do want to appreciate everybody tuning in. And we'll be back with you tomorrow. We'll hit up some other choice topics about baseball, sports, and unified America. Hope everybody enjoys their Wednesday night. You got some baseball games on tonight, of course, both of the league championship series. We'll see where things end up. I, I'm very interested to see what we get out of Clayton Kershaw today. You know, a guy that obviously is, has been the Sandy Koufax of this generation. He's been a guy that started and started out during the regular season has dominated. He's essentially been the Peyton Manning of Major League Baseball. Of course, Peyton Manning ended up winning himself a couple Super Bowl himself a couple Super Bowls, including his last year in Denver. But I want to see a vintage Clayton Kershaw performance tonight. See what ends up happening. Obviously, got Boston and the Astros. So, hope everybody has a good night. God bless you. And as always, I'll see you on the other side.